KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. The latest variants and boosters for COVID-19. We haven't even seen the primary uh, series of vaccines used adequately. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego is closer to mandating organic recycling. People say it's the biggest change to recycling California in 30 years. It requires cities to either collect themselves or force their their haulers to collect green waste, which is yard trimmings and food. We dive into what makes a terrific taco, and Beth Accomando previews the Filipino Film Festival. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. The number of people who have been vaccinated with the Omicron-specific booster shot remains low across the country, and at the same time, new variants of COVID-19 are emerging. This week, Los Angeles officials announced they detected a few cases of a new variant, BA2.75.2. It's one that Dr. Anthony Fauci has called suspicious. Joining me to talk about all things COVID-19, as he does every other week, is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. And Dr. Topol, welcome back. Thanks very much, Jade. Great to be with you again. Let's start by talking about this variant, 2.75.2, that's been detected very close to us in Los Angeles. What do we know about it? Well, it's one of the variants of Omicron that's been derived from BA2, as its number uh, shows, that has more immune decoy effects, escape, than the ones that we've seen already, like BA5, the, the wave we just got through. But it's not as concerning as one that's starting to get rooted here in the U.S. and in many countries in Europe. That one is called BQ.1.1, and you'll be hearing a lot more of that one because it it is the worst one we've seen for immune escape. And there's a concern that it'll make further dents in our vaccine protection. So that's why it's really important to get as much protection as you can right now, because it's not only about the, the variants that are out there, which fortunately are in lower numbers than they have been, but what's on the move right now, a, a significant wave in Europe and undoubtedly one that we're going to be confronting here in the U.S. in the weeks ahead. But do our boosters work for these these variants? They will work. We don't have much data on how you know the magnitude of efficacy for the BA5 variant with respect to not just that particular variant, but these new ones that are cropping up, like the one you mentioned and the one that is a principal concern that could take over uh, a large part of the world, like BA5 did. So we don't have data for that. We have some lab data from a couple of labs around the world who have been trying to stay ahead of this. And it looks like it's going to be a, a challenge that the vaccines, like we've seen, don't do great for protecting from infections and spread. 
but they help preserve that high level of protection from severe disease, hospitalizations, deaths, and also long COVID. So the rationale for these boosters is not that we're going to have a great job in preventing infections, but just keeping people out of the hospital, keeping them very sick, helping to reduce the toll of long COVID. Those are the real objectives for the booster. You know, today the FDA okayed the booster for elementary school-aged kids. The CDC still needs to sign off on it. How much of an impact could this have on the winter COVID surge many are predicting? Well, I think the uptake of vaccines in children has been very low. Uh, and uh, it's disappointing because the net data shows that it has protective effect. In fact, in the youngest children, the infection protection is pretty good, and that would help with things like school outbreaks. The benefits, of course, are less striking than in people who are older, over age 50 or 60. But uh, the booster is going to be tricky because we haven't even seen the primary uh, series of vaccines used adequately in this country. So getting a booster in the small proportion, the minority of kids, uh, it would help. But uh, we just have to do better vaccines across the board from six months where vaccines are approved all the way through to the oldest Americans. In regards to the possible winter surge, I want to talk about the current quarantine guidelines. The CDC says five days, and if you're symptom-free, you can end isolation. A new study out this week suggests that's not adequate. What did it find? Well, this big study, 65,000 people followed with uh, rapid tests and symptoms, showed that the five-day isolation that has been the position of the CDC is totally inadequate. Because if you were symptomatic with COVID, 80% uh, were still positive well after five days. And the only way to do this right is with rapid tests, as the study showed in an additional, another paper this week. So this is one of the major flaws at CDC is to advocate a five-day isolation with COVID. And then if you're feeling okay, you know, go right back to work. The problem is you'll spread COVID. And that's not going to help us uh, and, the help, and the people who get infected. So this is really, um, you know, one of the most striking deficiencies of our CDC not paying attention to the data. This isn't the first report of this uh, issue of the five days being inadequate, but it's an impressive large one. And it adds to others. And the CDC keeps ignoring this, uh, which is so unfortunate. Do you have a sense of how big an impact leaving isolation after five days is actually having on spreading the virus? Well, if you look at the the charts in this JAMA paper this week, you'd say a lot because these people are so infectious, you know, all the way through day 10, typically, uh, and even longer in many. And also another study that was published in the New England Journal showed that the cultures of the virus are easy. That is, the the infectiousness is very high unless people convert to a negative test. So if a person has um, no test and drills out at five days, goes back to work or starts to get together with other people, the chance of infection spreading is high. Uh, What should people be doing based on what we know? Well, the best thing you can do right now is you you get some rapid tests uh, if you have had COVID and you look, start really after day five to be smart, maybe day six or seven. And you'd like to see two days of consecutive negative tests, and then you're good to go. 
uh, that would be the best practice. Typically, that's going to wind up being somewhere around day seven, eight, or nine. Some people much longer, even now to 12 or, or 14. But the two consecutive days of negative rapid tests is the way to go. Why do you think the CDC isn't recommending people get a negative rapid test before ending isolation? That's a really good question, Jade. I mean, we have to try to guess that it's the convenience, the fact that not everybody can get their hands on the rapid tests, that they wanted to keep people uh, in 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 work and in society. And there's an overall denial, of course, of uh, the severity of COVID, long COVID and infection chain of transmission. We keep seeing this theme from the CDC, their transmission map is so different than their so-called community level map uh, that they that they show. So they've tried to minimize the uh, toll of COVID and the infectiousness, and this goes along with it. You recently wrote about the contrast in pandemic outcomes between Japan and the United States. First, what are those differences in outcomes? So Japan has 40% more people age 65 and older. And as you know, age is the single most important dominant factor for driving outcomes, particularly deaths uh, after COVID. Now, that's 40% more than the U.S. And what's interesting is the deaths in in Japan are about one-ninth, one-ninth. That is, in the U.S., you have about one in 300 chance of dying from COVID. And of course, most of those 75% are in people over age 65 or 70. Whereas in Japan, it's one in 2,800 chance of death. Now, the reasons for that, because you know we know there's less obesity in Japan, considerably less obesity, less diabetes, but that's not a big driver like age. And what's interesting is in Japan, they have much more use of masks still today. They intend to use masks indefinitely, unlike in the U.S. They have very little anti-science, anti-vax. They have an incredible culture of supporting each other, particularly the respect for elders. It's notable throughout the world that Japan looks after their elders uh, in, a, in a way that's quite striking. So all the things about Japan versus U.S. are are quite impressive. They are the lowest death rate of any country in the world without lockdowns, without any significant restrictions. You could say China did better, but obviously they've had a zero COVID policy with multiple lockdowns through major cities throughout the pandemic still today. Uh, And they've had, obviously, uh, draconian restrictions. So Japan did this with the right balance. They achieved the lowest deaths of any uh, country in the world. And it's something that we can learn from. And so if we could simulate Japan uh, going forward in this pandemic and future challenges of infectious diseases, that would be uh, terrific. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla, Dr. Topol, as always, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Thanks so much, Jane.
San Diego is one step closer to complying with a state law mandating organic recycling. New agreements were reached this week with the city's eight private trash haulers. The companies will move forward with additional equipment and personnel needed to outfit multifamily units with green recycling bins. In a massive statewide climate action move, the law now requires cities to recycle lawn and food waste separately from other recyclables. If San Diego is not in compliance by January's deadline, it may face state-ordered fines. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, welcome. Thanks for having me. Remind us about the new state law, SB 1383, and what it requires cities to do. People say it's the biggest change to recycling California in 30 years. It requires cities to either collect themselves or force their, their haulers to collect green waste, which is yard trimmings and food, because those things in landfills are creating methane gas, which is contributing to climate change. So the state wants the, the state wants cities to do that to help fight climate change. Now, this bill was signed back in 2016. It was supposed to start early this year. Why is it taking so long to get started in San Diego? I think it's taking long in a lot of places. This is a huge change, but it has been particularly bad in San Diego. I think it's because the city wasn't really doing any green waste recycling or hardly any. And so it's a whole ramp up. They have to buy new trucks, hire new drivers, and come up with a whole new process. And they also have to force their private haulers to do the same thing. What is it about these agreements with the private haulers reached this week that will get this new recycling plan moving? Well, if they don't meet uh, goals for recycling, they'll be fined. The city will get fined by the state, and then they'll pass those fines onto the private haulers. That's sort of the number one hammer that's involved in the case. Will this increase trash fees for multifamily units? It doesn't include an official increase, but that's almost a guaranteed uh, thing because these uh, private haulers are going to be doing a lot more work. They're going to be more personnel. They're going to have to do more picking up and more sorting. The, the, the expectation is they will pass this on to customers. In other parts of the state, uh, the increases have ranged from 20 to 25% around that number. In San Diego, it's going to be hard to say for sure if it'll be at that number because most cities have a monopoly where one trash hauler handles the trash. And in San Diego, they have this open competitive market. And so it's just a different dynamic. Now, you write that private haulers service 70% of the city's trash pickup. The city only handles 30%, and that's for single-family homes. Do you think the new recycling program has influenced the move to consider fees for single-family home trash pickup? Of course, that's Measure B coming up on the November ballot. I'm certain that it has because I was at the public hearings where that was sort of part of the debate. I mean, it evolved out of a debate. The city spends, I think, $70 million a year on trash at single-family homes, uh, and they don't charge those people any money at all. And that number is going to sharply increase because now the city's going to have to, instead just picking up trash and the blue recycle bin materials like bottles and cans, they're going to have to pick up the green waste, which means that city's expenses of, of servicing these single-family homes are going to go way up. And so it's just more of a, a, an impetus to try to reconsider this uh, you know, gift to single-family homeowners of free trash pickup. When haulers start picking up the separated lawn and food waste, where is it supposed to go? Well, it's supposed to be composted, and that's another issue here, is that San Diego hasn't really built a composting uh, infrastructure that is necessary. They say that they're on the way to doing that, and they plan to do that. And that's a common theme throughout the state, is that this law had a lot of ambitious uh, requirements and goals, the state envisioned all these requirements and they envisioned a composting system 
available throughout the state to handle this green waste, but that's not really in place yet. It'll, it'll be coming throughout cities across the state. There is concern that the private trash haulers in San Diego have not been complying with commitments to recycle 50% of the recyclables that they've already been picking up. So is there any enforcement in the new agreements? They are subject to fines. And if the city gets fined by the state, they will pass the fines on to the haulers and they will do it on a prorated basis. If one particular of the eight haulers is more responsible for the city not meeting its uh, its state goals, then that, that particular hauler will face a greater share of whatever fines get passed on. How are people going to find out about this? I mean, is there somebody going to be disseminating educational material or anything like that? If you live in a single-family home, the city has already been sending you information and doing outreach and education. Um, if you if you live in a condo or an apartment or if you're a business owner, you're handled by a private hauler. And the new, th- new agreement that was reached this week requires those private haulers to do education and outreach with their customers. So if you live in an apartment or condo, expect your private hauler, whether it's Edco or Waste Management or Republic or one of the other callers to to be sending you information soon about what you need to do to recycle your food and green waste. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrick. And David, thank you. Thanks for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. San Diego may not be the home of the best cheesesteak or pastrami sandwiches in the U.S., but when you start dropping our ranking on tacos, them's fighting words. A recent survey of best taco cities in America had San Diego as number eight on the list, losing out to number one ranked Austin, Texas, and even Oklahoma City scoring higher on their taco meter. The list was compiled by a group calling itself Clever Real Estate, and it based its rankings on data which included the U.S. Census Community Survey and Yelp, and scored categories like the number of taco restaurants, the number of taco food trucks, and something called Taco Passion. We did our own unscientific taco passion survey, and many KPBS listeners contributed their best-loved tacos and cherished taco eateries. Here's KPBS producer Harrison Patino with some of what we heard. Tacos remind Carlsbad listener Kristen Reichart of nighttime in Mexico, where neighbors and passersby gather for a quick meal at brightly illuminated street stands. Zeynep Barakat of Poway simply says that it's the perfect combination of flavors— The cilantro, onions, avocado, protein, salsa, and condiments all make for a fantastic blend. For Tacos al Pastor, listeners Aaron Grady-Brown and Roxanne Vasquez swear by the convoy's El Gordo. If it's fish tacos, Christian Rodriguez swears by what's on offer at El Sabor de la Baja in Chula Vista, although plenty of listeners love the tacos at long-standing San Diego-based chain Rubio's. Iana Angelo says that anything from one of El Zarape's multiple locations is great, and for Tacos de Cabeza, Catalina Lopez says that it's got to be Walberto's. And to the question, why do we love tacos, Ernie Mayape of National City says, is this a trick question? Is that meant to be rhetorical? Well, listener Antoine James has a not-so-rhetorical answer. Tacos are the greatest comfort food, he says. Tacos are healing. Joining me now to break down our love of all things taco is Gustavo Ariano, an author and columnist for the LA Times, as well as host of the ongoing Great Tortilla Tournament. And Gustavo, welcome back to the show. 
Gracias as always for having me. So L.A. did a little bit better than San Diego on this dubious survey coming in at number <laughs> five. But Austin, Oklahoma, what were they thinking? Look, I'm never going to hate on a place's taco scene unless I've actually had it. So I could say this, given I wrote a book about the history of Mexican food in the United States in 2012. Austin's taco scene is good. It's not as good as San Diego, not even close. Oklahoma City, it's up and coming. It's nowhere near as good as Austin. So these listicles, frankly, they're uh, fulfilling their purpose, which is getting people like you and I to argue about them, talk trash on other scenes. But I will not get into the taco bashing. And I would tell others, unless you've been there, you can't also talk trash. Instead of talking trash of other taco scenes, elevate your own taco scene. Fair enough. Now, is there a distinct (laughs) difference between Southern California tacos and Texas tacos? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you get it with the meat. In other words, in Texas, you have a lot of what's called guiso stews. Flour tortillas are king. You also have breakfast tacos, especially in San Antonio and Austin. And a breakfast taco is basically the Tex-Mex version of what we know in Southern California, the breakfast burrito, of course. You know, so bean and cheese, bean and rice, any combination. They have a small flour tortilla. They eat as tacos. We as burritos. And then here in Southern California, we love our carne asada. We love our fish tacos, our shrimp tacos, especially down in San Diego, so close to Baja. Uh, You also have regional tacos. So tacos from parts of Mexico where those folks migrate to Southern California in a way that they don't in Texas. And frankly, we just have more of that, which makes our scene that much better. You know, in the survey, there's no distinction made between soft and hard, crunchy tacos. Do you think Californians have a preference? Nowadays, it's soft tacos, but, you know, and soft tacos, just in case you don't even know what on earth that is, a soft taco is now what most people just call a taco. In other words, a taco and a tortilla. The hard taco is going to be the, in Spanish, we call them the tacos dorados, fried tacos with either prefabricated shell or made freshly. There is still a huge fan base for hard tacos in Southern California because this is where that style really first came into the United States. Started in Los Angeles with Cielito Lindo. You also had taquitos, of course, El Indio in San Diego. And then you had just the regular tacos that started spreading around. It's easy to make fun of them, but a good hard shell taco. Oh, man, the crunch, the oil, the lettuce, the cheddar cheese. Oh, I need one right now. I am not making fun of them, okay? (laughs) Ever, ever, ever. One bright spot for San Diego in this listing or this compilation of listings is that Yelp-named South Bay Taqueria Ed Fernandez restaurant, the top taco shop in the United States, and we also came in first for observing Taco Tuesdays. Now, how do they figure this stuff out? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's all algorithms. I have not been to South Bay Taqueria. I have to now that I'm very interested in that. But it's all algorithms. It's all hype. Look, you folks in San Diego know what your taco scene is like to the point of you calling them taco shops. Like in Los Angeles, we don't call them taco shops. We call them taquerias. The big point that I always try to make when I talk about Mexican food is that we all have our distinct food scenes. A lot of us have not tried the food and other food scenes. So when we hear about these, we immediately want to talk trash. Again, don't hate until you've had it. So San Diego has amazing tacos. Los Angeles has amazing tacos. Stop the rivalry. We are taco cousins. Of course, though, both San Diego and L.A. have some stiff competition right across the border in Baja. How do you think our tacos compare with TJ's? Well, with Tijuana, I mean, San Diego and Tijuana, they're just uh, separated by a border. They're really one big, vast metropolitan area with Tijuana. And and so a lot of the modern day taco scene in San Diego and, of course, Chula Vista, San Isidro, it's it's basically Tijuana tacos. So you have that avocado uh, salsa, almost like a guacamole, but spicy. You have uh, they don't call it al pastor. So it's, you know, roasted pork on a spit. They call it adobada. You have, again, just a big, huge food scene uh, influenced by Sinaloa. You have the love of 
flour tortillas. That's also coming from Baja via Sinaloa and Sonora. So in that sense, San Diego's tacos are distinctly different from what you have in Los Angeles. And on some days, they are better than LA's tacos. I will say that. Finally, you've been hosting an ongoing tortilla tournament that looks to find the best homemade tortilla in Southern California. Can you tell us a bit more about it and what you've learned so far? Yes. So for NPR station, KCRW in Santa Monica, for the past five years, I've done a tortilla tournament. It's exactly what it sounds like. 64 tortillas, 32 corn, 32 flour, broken up into four brackets, seeded of 16. It's like a sports style tournament. This year, we did what I called the San Diego Tortilla Tournament Invitational. I got eight corn tortillas, eight flour tortillas. I matched them up. The finalist in each category made it into the bigger tournament, El Indio, the legendary El Indio with amazing corn tortillas. Oh my gosh, I've never tasted corn tortillas like that. It made it into what we call the Suave 16. We're going to continue to offer San Diego tortillas every year. So if the listeners have some tortillas I need to eat, please let me know because I am hungry. (laughs) Which do you prefer, corn or flour? There's more diversity of flavor and flour, but if a corn tortilla nails that holy trinity of water, corn, and lime, at least for me as a Mexican, it taps into like this fundamental pride of being a Mexican that extends thousands of years. I know I'm sounding metaphysical, but it's absolutely true. Like when you get that, you're like, no way can flour ever be corn. So give me corn. But then let me make a quesadilla with flour. I've been speaking with author and LA Times columnist Gustavo Ariano. Gustavo, thank you so much. (laughs) Good eating. Gracias. Now that Europe has reopened its doors to tourism, many eager soon-to-be travelers are planning long-awaited vacations across the continent. If this describes you, you might want to check out a new six-hour series from Rick Steves called Art of Europe. The series starts with the Stone Age and ancient Greece and finishes with the Modern Age, telling stories about famous works of art, the artists that made them, and the history that inspired them. KPBS reporter Andrew Bowen spoke with Rick Steves about the new series and began by asking him why he wanted to focus a series on the art of Europe. Here's that conversation. Well, you know, all my life uh, in my career, I've been teaching European travel. And a huge part of European travel is getting excited about the art. And way back when I was a college student, I was giving a six-hour all-day talk about European art and how to make it fun and meaningful. And uh, over the last decades, I've written books and made apps and taken tours, all um, sort of designed to help people understand why we need to understand and appreciate and enjoy art. It's a, a big part of your travels. And I've really found the more you bring to it, the more you get out of it. And it should be fun. So we had the challenge of distilling the whole exciting story of European art from the prehistoric times to the Pantheon into six one-hour programs. And it's been a two-year project, and we've drawn on 20 years of shooting in the greatest galleries and palaces and museums around Europe. And it's for me, it's just so exciting as a tour guide and a travel teacher and an art enthusiast to finally have it available on uh, public broadcasting. You mentioned you start with prehistory. Give us a brief outline of what eras of art and culture you'll be taking a look at. Well, the big challenge, Andrew, was to break it into you know six one-hour segments, and uh, I wanted to you know be concise and kind of have an overview and respect people's attention span. And uh, we broke it into these six hours. And for a quick overview, the first hour is prehistoric through Egypt and ancient Greece. 
The next hour is A Thousand Years of Rome from 500 BC to 500 AD. The third hour is A Thousand Years of uh, Medieval History from about 500 to 1500. Fourth hour is the Renaissance, and that's about 200 years from 1400 to 1600 in very general terms. The fifth hour would be Baroque, followed with Neoclassical, and that's 1600 to the French Revolution or after that around 1800. And then the final hour is the Romantic movement right into the modern age, basically from 1850 or so until today. And um, the wonderful challenge and the tough challenge of deciding what should make the cut and then going to Europe and getting permission to get into all these amazing places and bring home the footage and and lace it into this six-hour story. And uh, man, when I get to, I've been sweeping through the shows just as we finished things off in the last month, and and I'm it's just so darn beautiful. The stuff we've made over the centuries and in European art is just so much fun to actually appreciate, enjoy, and to understand. My husband and I just traveled to Europe this past summer, and we waited in lines to see the David and Florence. We packed into this tight viewing area to see the Mona Lisa in Paris. And those works, of course, are beautiful. But I'm wondering, what are some less famous works of art off the beaten path, so to speak, where the crowds might not be as intense and and viewers might still really love them? Andrew, the fact is American tourists all go to the same places. So it's no wonder Mona Lisa is going to be packed and Michelangelo's David is going to be packed and the Sistine Chapel is going to be packed. And those are great sites, but there's plenty of opportunities to get off the beaten path. And what I like to do is find new artists that I didn't know I was so excited about. Fra Angelico, he's the greatest of the high middle age painters. And for him, you know, they say painting was a form of prayer and he couldn't paint a crucifix without weeping. Um, There's some incredible sensuous tapestries that came out of the late middle ages. Um, One is called The Lady and the Unicorn, and it just celebrates people enjoying life and and actually getting sensuous about things. And and to see the smirks and the innuendo in the art from five or 600 years ago is amazing. To know that um, art is propaganda and then to see it through the proper um, lens so you can imagine what was going on back then is just so much fun. And our challenge is not only to not just go to the most famous places, but to bring some understanding with us. People ask me, how can you, you know, well, there's two things. How can you avoid the crowds and how can you save some money? About saving money, it's going to cost us all about the same to go into these palaces and galleries. But those who bring an understanding get triple the joy out of it. And as far as crowds go, the thing about COVID is it has taught Europe that they need to control crowds better. And they've got this situation where everybody wants to go to the same places. So the most crowded places are now by appointment only in general. And if you need to get a reservation, just do it. Do it in advance. And then you'll go to these places. And even though they are really famous, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, for instance, they only allow a couple dozen people in at a time. And it's just uh, available now for people who get that appointment in advance. Uh, But to, to answer your question, there are so many artists that we don't appreciate until we learn about them, until the, until we see them over there in their original situation. I, I just love finding a new artist that I didn't know I liked so much. You know, there's Mucha for the Art Nouveau. There's David for the French Revolution. Of course, there's Klimt in the modern age in Vienna. And uh, it feels fun to go home knowing a new artist, but it's just a, a lifelong challenge for us to understand and get turned on by the art. And that's what I'm excited about this project that we've got Europe distilled 
into six hours so people can see that it's fun and it's meaningful. And the more you understand it, the more you'll enjoy it. Very useful tip there uh, that I wish I had learned this summer to make reservations in advance, weeks in advance, perhaps even. Um, in some ways, I think art history is history itself. It's a documentation of what was happening at a given time and how people understood it back then. Tell me about how your series puts European works of art into an historical context. Well, that is the challenge, is to see it in its context, to be filled with wonder. I mean, you're going to see prehistoric cave paintings. If you can go in there as if you're a prehistoric hunter with a torch under a dome of bison, I mean, you're going to just really find those big paintings flicker with life. Uh, if you can imagine what it's like to be a medieval peasant stepping from an existence of hunger and shivering and fear into a church and to be surrounded by the riches and the promise of a happy eternity, uh, to see things in their context. Um, you can imagine a pilgrim who's hiked for, for weeks to get to a spot, and there he finally spots the Gothic spire on the horizon. You can imagine the, the joy, the, the, the jubilation when he finally reaches his, his destiny. Um, to remember that throughout most of history, people were ruled by divine monarchs who really people believed were ordained by God to rule without question. Well, to go into their palaces and let that propaganda just wow you. The Hall of Mirrors, you know, Louis the the Fourteenth's big hall at Versailles, it's just slathered in gold mirror. And it's a bigger collection of, of it's, it's slathered in gold leaf. And it's a bigger collection of mirrors than had ever been assembled. And to go there and to see it in the context of a person who really believed that God said, my king gets to rule me without question, and I'm just going to have to follow him. Uh, you just kind of go, wow, my king really is amazing. He can grow oranges in Paris. Nobody else could, you know, just to understand the context, who paid for it and why. And that goes right across, right across uh, art history. Art transports us to other cultures um, to understand the triumph and the challenges and the purpose of all this art. That's been the joy for us. And to bring it home into this series, it's just, uh, for me, the teaching challenge and the, and, the, and the rewarding project of a lifetime is to be able to celebrate this new series that we've spent two years making. Art is very subjective. I, for example, could look at Art Nouveau all day, but show me five Madonna and Child paintings and I start to zone out pretty quickly. I, but I'm wondering, is there one work of art or one museum that is just so spectacular that it's worth planning a vacation around? It really depends on your interest. I mean, like, for instance, you like Art Nouveau. Well, that's a great thing to know ahead of time. Why not focus on Art Nouveau and make it a, a theme everywhere you go? Remember, it's it's got a different name in different countries. In, in Spain, it's called Modernisma. You'd go to Barcelona and you'd see all the amazing architecture by guys like Gaudí, including the Sagrada Familia. Uh, you could go to the Czech Republic and you could enjoy amazing Art Nouveau by Alphonse Mucha. You could go to Vienna and it's called Jugendstil there. You could go to Scotland. And, and, and you could enjoy Art Nouveau by Macintosh there. It's important, again, to do your studying in advance. And I would just tell you, it really rewards you. For me, the greatest galleries and the greatest museums are a kind of a reflection of who were the most powerful kings. I think my favorite collection of paintings anywhere in Europe is in Madrid. Why in Madrid? Well, because 400 years ago, Madrid had the most powerful empire, uh, and the king in Madrid controlled so much of Europe. I mean, that's why the Netherlands were called the Spanish Netherlands back then, 
And much of my favorite Flemish and Dutch art happens to be in the Prado in Madrid. The Spanish king had enough power and money to get all the great art or so much great art. And of course, in Spain, you've got great local artists. But I'll tell you, the more I travel, the more I realize you can never exhaust Europe but what it has to offer. And I love to go to a national gallery of whatever country I'm in just to check out the romantic art that celebrates its nature, romantic meaning art from the 1800s. So if you're in Oslo or if you're in Dublin, go to the National Gallery, check out the romantic art celebrating nature before you go into the fjord country or over to the west coast of Ireland or whatever, and you'll probably get more of a dose of that romantic approach to nature, which is kind of a good example of how culture and your sightseeing and uh, society and its art all weave together. That was KPBS reporter Andrew Bowen talking with Rick Steves, author and host of Travel with Rick Steves, about his new upcoming series, Art of Europe, which debuts this Saturday on KPBS-TV at 4 p.m. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The San Diego Filipino Film Festival launched last year and returns tonight with even more films. The festival was founded by filmmakers Emma Francisco and Benito Bautista in order to raise awareness for Filipino cinema as an important art form and a tool for representation, education, and entertainment. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando previews the festival with co-founder Bautista. So, Benito, you launched your film festival right after the pandemic, which must have been challenging. So how did that first festival go? That was definitely challenging and nerve-wracking because you have no idea who's going to come. But we had 41 films during the first San Diego Filipino Film Festival. And that gave us the drive and the inspiration to continue and to expand the film festival with the idea of really making it highly visible for our community and for the diverse community so that they can be curious and learn about our stories and our perspectives and our global experience as Filipinos everywhere, as artists. So that was challenging, but at the same time, very, very inspirational. And how does it feel now going into the second one? The same feeling. <laughs> it's doubled now. The challenge is doubled, of course. The inspiration is, is doubled. And the joy of bringing more films to the festival and bringing more people and engaging the audience. And hopefully, you know, we learn from the audience. Now, this year, it is actually the largest curation of global Filipino films in the United States. We have 69 films, Beth, and we have a lot of filmmakers coming. So it's, it's challenging, but joyful, yes, and inspirational, yes. And you will be opening with a program of short films. So what were you looking for in these short films? It, it's actually Emma's design. Emma is the programming director. She's the head of the programming. After reviewing some of the films, Emma said that we, we want to change the format, you know, of opening film. And we want to celebrate the, the, the filmmakers that are 
didn't stop during COVID. Even with meager budget, they still created their own films. Emma said, we are going to celebrate the, the short form uh, 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 narrative and also documentaries. But in, this, in the opening films, we have the narrative shorts. You know, uh, it is a global uh, uh, Filipino uh, experience and stories. It talks about love. It talks about modern day love. It talks about history of war, remains of war. Yeah, um, it talks about mentorship in film and, and how you idolize somebody and it changes the way you look at them and, you know, all those things. And these are jury-nominated short films. Benito, you have a wonderful centerpiece film this year. It's Leonore Will Never Die. I saw this wildly inventive film at Virtual Sundance. It has to do with a woman who gets hit on the head by a TV. <laughs> Goes into a coma. And then writes herself into the screenplay of a 1970s Philippine action film. So what did you like about this film? Emma and I are big fans of Martika Escobar. We met Martika when we were filming in the Philippines a while back. And so when Leonor will never die, and I think... Emma and I watched it the same way you watched it at Sundance Virtual. And we, we were, while watching, texting Martika, you know, and said, hey, Martika, we're enjoying your film. Well, congratulations. But what we love about the film is the idea of a woman Filipina filmmaker having an auteur handle about concepts and stories that are not your usual take on things. And this is coming from a young perspective and design and coming from my heritage, a Filipino heritage of a filmmaker. So that, I think, is the major and the most important part about Leonore Will Never Die for us. Aside from the, the intricacy of going into the, uh, the action films of the, <laughs> of the 70s, right? <laughs> And, you know, remember, action films in the 70s in the Philippines, that was big. And as young kids growing up, everyone idolized the action stars. They're, they're superstars. And so Leonor, Sheila, Miss Sheila Francisco, you know, the actress, uh, really portrayed, you know, somebody who's having a coma and then being able to write herself in a film in the 70s action film, you know, and that's something that really is unique and, and, and we, we love it. And you also have a retrospective screening highlighting an older film. So tell me what film you chose for that. We want to celebrate the work of director Marilu Diaz Abaya. She recently passed away and we want to reintroduce her to the, the, the mainstream audience and the diverse audiences so that they can understand that in the Philippine film industry, globally, we, we are inclusive. We appreciate women filmmakers and writers and directors and cinematographers. We appreciate them. And Marilu Diaz Abaya is one of the Filipino filmmakers at the forefront of Philippine world cinema. And so she did this at the time when there's not really a lot of uh, women filmmakers, but, you know, there were actually uh, uh, women filmmakers on the rise. 
And Philippine film industry realized that, you know, anybody can tell a story. And we appreciate all perspectives coming from all agendas. So we're bringing her film, Karnal. I want the audience to kind of research and be curious about her work how she started with her husband as the cinematographer. It's a very interesting story. If you, if you know the story of Marilu Diaz-Abaya as a filmmaker, she was not the one who is you know, going to be the, the director of one of the early films. Her husband was the cinematographer, and, and her husband said, why don't you direct the film? That was the, that was the idea. You know, and, and nervous and challenged, she did. And she did very well. That's exciting. So, yes. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about the San Diego Filipino Film Festival. Thank you, Beth, for having me. I, you know, I'm really excited. <laughs> I'm excited. And again, I'm, I'm nervous. You know, it's like preparing food for, for your guests, your family and friends, but right? But strangers at the same time. And so you hope that everything is okay. You hope that the house is clean and the food is, is, is you know, the food is beautiful and sumptuous for everyone. So it's, it's like that. When somebody tells you cheers to good food, oh, that's, that's a million dollar happiness for us. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Benito Bautista. The San Diego Filipino Film Festival kicks off its second year at the AMC Otay Ranch Town Center tonight and runs through October 18th. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.